So we're talking about tonight's class, Science and Religion. The book that we're doing tonight, the pamphlet, was made in 1946 by Marcel Cachin, C-A-C-H-I-N, who was the editor of the L'Humanité, which in English means humanity. It's the newspaper of the French Communist Party. And he also was a member of the parliament after World War II in 1946. He was a member of the French National Assembly. Let me just give a background of this first. In philosophy and in the world outlook, especially that deals with religion and also philosophy, there are two world outlooks. One is called materialism, which is what Marx, Lenin, Engels, and Stalin based their world outlook on, all based on what Marx and Engels talked about. And the other one is called idealism. And it comes from the word idea, which is the basics of how you look at the world, what comes first, you heard this, the chicken or the egg. What comes first, the senses, what they see and smell and hear, does that come first or does the idea come first in the mind? And that's the two ways of philosophically looking at the world and how it develops. One is called materialism, which is what is, and the other one is idealism based on, on the mind. So one is based on basically the body, and the other one's based on the mind. So materialism is the philosophy of communists throughout the world who believe in science and its application. Science alone can explain the world. It answers all the needs of the heart as well as the needs of the mind. Every day it clarifies, meaning science clarifies, men's minds more completely, and no one can set a limit to its progress. On the question of communism, the author is talking about religion and different types of religion, and the book says communism does not choose among them. We know that their role was and still is immense. That is the role of religion. Communism teaches neither scorn nor hate for those ancient forms of men's thought before science. It recommends that we study their origins and history in order to understand what people who have a religious view understand them. It will then be found out that our present, the present that we live in now, is bound up with the past, that many old ideas have survived over the centuries in men's minds. And also that despite appearances, there is a continuity of one culture to another. Communism bases itself on man. And when we say man, we mean humanity, mankind. Real, concrete, living, thinking, suffering, mankind. Men and women and their destiny. That is the sole aim of the efforts of communism. There are some billions and billions of human beings scattered over the earth. The historic role of communism is to guarantee to each and every one of these individuals freedom. Notice, freedom is the word we're using. Freedom, joy, and the complete development of one's physical and moral well-being.
This is for all people, whatever they may be, wherever they may come from. And I thought this was interesting, the quote, if the city is not open to all, said the French philosopher Michelet, I shall not enter that city. We want to wipe the tears from every face. Science gives us the means to do that. Now, I thought that's an interesting quote because I applied that to a communist party. And I said to myself, if the party is not open to all, then why would anyone want to enter it? We want to wipe the tears from every face. Science gives us the means to do that. And basically, if the city or the party is not open to all, then who will want to enter it? That came to my mind when I read this. To usher in a social order in which this final goal will be attained is humanity's higher moral law. And notice the author uses the word moral. So ethics and morality are part of what we are as communists. It is the categorical imperative of our era. For after 70 centuries of religious discipline, including 20 centuries of Christian teaching, notice 20 centuries of Christian teaching, man is still a wolf to his fellow man. This is the author saying that. Nothing can conceal such a demonstration of impotence. Where religions have failed, science comes forward to achieve a human civilization that is worthy of the name humanity. The philosophical doctrines that are rooted in French traditions, remember this is a Frenchman writing this, we are the sons of the Enlightenment, we are the sons of encyclopedias, we remain faithful to the materialist conception, to their desire for man's material and moral progress. But since the appearance of the encyclopedia in 1760, almost 200 years have lapsed. Actually, it's more than that because this was written in 1946. Three outstanding facts dominate the centuries. One, physical and natural sciences have made great advances. Two, the application of science has changed the face of the world. Three, the history and the evolution of human society has been studied scientifically. The guides of modern man have appeared on the scene under the influence of these three important events. And I want to mention here, and then I'll open it up to discussion, what Marx said uh, scientifically, that how we developed as a society. We started in the cave period. We went from the cave period in which lightning and fire were first discovered, and right away the gods were given the reason for that. We went from the cave period where we collectively worked together instead of individually. We went from the cave period to the period of slavery, the period of Rome, Greece, where they had classes, obviously classes, the wealthy, the, the what they call the patricians, and the plebeians, the average working person. We went from that to the period of the Middle Ages, which was a period of serfs, where now men and women were no longer 
slaves, they were connected with the land. And of course, the people who owned the land were able to own the serfs. And we went from the Middle Ages then to the Industrial Revolution. This is all scientifically charted. We went from that to the Industrial Revolution, the creation of capitalism. From capitalism, we went to monopoly capitalism. And after that, we went to the next level, according to Marx and Lenin and Stalin and all communists, the period of socialism, where the means of production are socialized. And the motto, from each according to his needs, to each according to their work. That's socialism. And then, of course, our view of socialism is different than the liberals' view of socialism. We see socialism as a stepping stone to the next step, which is communism, which we have not achieved yet. Socialism is from each according to his abilities to each according to his work, and communism is from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. Needs, right. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to stop right there, and then later I'm going to go into religions and how religions got their original based on Greek mythology. He goes into that into this book. Anything on what we just said? Yeah, just a statement that I really like this class. I like how this is like a almost philosophical discussion, but that it's not just something out of the blue, that the author ties it to Marx and to Engels and to socialism and to communism. I would like to know if you can explain to us why it is that in so many Catholic countries, like it's particularly in Europe, like Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, why do these countries have communist parties with so many Catholics in them? The reason I'm asking is because the word Catholic means universal. And so you have your faith and you believe in God and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's true, then what do you need the party for? Good question. I'll just briefly go into it. The famous quote from Marx is, reality is changing all the time. And it, those of us who have had experience with not only our own past, but the past of people that we know, people are changing constantly. And politically, I notice people who used to be anarchists are now socialists. People who used to be communists, this is historically, became anti-communist. People that were pro-party became anti-party. We went through that experience recently where they put themselves first. So using that as a background, that reality is always changing. If socialism, as practiced in the Soviet Union in the beginning, did not fulfill, in my opinion, did not fulfill the understanding and the fulfillment of people of why they were here on Earth, why are they here? Who made us? That kind of thing. If it didn't fulfill that, people searched other places. So places like Italy, as you mentioned, and in Cuba, by the way, with Fidel, it was about, what, 12, 11 or 12 years ago, Fidel changed the, the that any member who's a religious person could join the party. They did that in Italy during Bell and Gas period, which was in the 70s. And the question is, why did that happen? Why did a society that felt religion was no longer needed, why it came back again? And that's a good question. Everybody has their own understanding of that, but there is an analysis that has to be drawn. In my opinion, when you're not involved with the communist movement completely, you tend to, mind tends to go somewhere else. If you don't find a fulfillment 
then you're going to go look for, for somewhere else. And that's where religion comes back. That's the only thing I can give you. I think his presentation is very, very uh, educational, very informative, because uh, he traces his worldly view from ancient times. And what I see a contradiction is that he is talking about the party being open to everybody. And that doesn't sound to me a Marxist-Leninist. I mean, because at the height of the Soviet Union, the Communist Party had only 15 million members, and they were all Marxist-Leninist, or they embraced the Marxist-Leninist ideology, and they had to go through academic screening. They did not just get accepted as members of the Communist Party, but they had to accept Marxism-Leninism as their worded view. And this philosopher from France tries to teach us that uh, the party must be open to all. So that kind, that sounds more social democratic to me than Marxist-Leninist. Good point. Concerning this book, Science and Religion, I enjoyed this book in the beginning because it reminded me of the philosophers I read when I was a teenager. And it tied into the whole materialism into it. But I would have to be critical in this book in the sense that the definition of what God is wasn't really defined. And I think the whole concept of God changes with each generation. So that's my statement. Okay, interesting point. I want to mention to everyone here that I'm giving the view of the author. It's not necessarily my view. It's the view of the author. We're discussing the author's pamphlet. So that's what I'm doing. Now let's get back to what he said here because I thought it was very interesting According to ancient legend, Prometheus, now let me explain who Prometheus was in old Greek legend. He was chained to a rock. By the way, in the Caucasus Mountain area of where the Soviet Union was, by the gods of Mount Olympus, because he sought to enlighten human minds. That's the reason why he was chained to that rock, because he wanted to enlighten human minds. This myth is linked with a biblical tale of man driven out of the Garden of Eden for having tested the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Notice the similarity. Everybody remember that. I forgot it myself. But that tree in the Garden of Eden was the tree of knowledge. And God, as the story goes, God told mankind and womankind, do not touch the fruit of knowledge. Stay away from knowledge. That never hit me before until tonight. All the religious background that I come out of, it doesn't really stress that the tree was the tree of knowledge. What it basically says is that God told them don't eat this fruit, and they disobeyed. But the point that it was the tree of knowledge and the old Greek legend of Prometheus Unbound who was chained to rock, it was also because of knowledge that he was chained to that rock. And I began to see connections between the author, what he's saying about old religions, myths in pagan societies, and how it developed into religion, the Roman Catholic religion specifically, and the offsprings of that, the Protestant sects. But he mentions Democritus. He was a Greek philosopher. He was driven out of the city of Abdera and banished from Ephesus. The Catholic Church imprisoned Galileo, because you remember what, why they did that. They tortured 
Campanella. They burned at the stake Bruno in Rome and Viani in France, Toulouse. At the time of the Inquisition, the Catholic Church made five million. That's a lot. You know, they talk about communism being detrimental to people's lives. Never once do you hear bourgeois society really stress that there were millions and millions who were executed in the dungeons and rotted in the dungeons of Europe during the Middle Ages. The author then says, Protestants, Geneva Protestants, burned at the stake, Servetus, a doctor and an unorthodox theologian. He was a medical doctor. Again, on one side, religion, on the other side, science. The Jewish rabbis excommunicated Spinoza. If anybody doesn't know, Spinoza was a Jewish philosopher from way back. He was the author of the book called Tractius Theological Politico, in which he commented on the Bible as a, quote, free thinker. And he forced the banishment from Amsterdam. Descartes, architect of modern thought during the Enlightenment, left France in order to be, quote, unquote, free. For 20 years, he took refuge in the Republic of Holland. In order to escape prosecution from the church, he no longer wished to live in, quote, what he called blind man's cave, end quote. In recent years, we have Darwin, Darwinism, and it still is in the South, condemned in courts of Protestant fundamentalists in the United States. In 1850, in a passionate speech, January 15th, Victor Hugo, he interpolated the religious sectarians and flung the following challenge to them. Whom are you against, said Victor Hugo? I will tell you, you are against human reason. Why? Because it brings the daylight. Interesting words. And during the period of the Enlightenment, it was the first time that people in Europe stood up and rejected the dogmatism in the midst of the religious world. When Napoleon received Laplace and congratulated him on his work on celestial mechanics, he asked the scientists why he had not spoken of God in his book. And he was a mathematician, and here's what he said. He replied to Napoleon, Sire, I have never had need of that hypothesis, end quote. All scientists could adopt as their own this famous remark. Between religion and science, according to this author, one must choose. Their conflict is in evidence throughout the history of human thought. At the very beginning of history, men divided into two groups, those who have confidence in the human mind and those that alone to explain the world. And in the other camp, you have mystics, religious-minded people who resort to extra-human explanations, to scientific acts of faith. Let me just tell you of my trip very shortly to the Soviet Union in 1976. The first thing that I experienced was a society operating without religion. 
I went into the Jewish synagogue in Moscow called the Choral Synagogue, and there was an old man who took care of the place, and there was a young married couple in there, and that's it. And I thought there was an interesting that I asked them, why don't young Soviet people believe in a god or a supernatural being? And the answer they gave me was striking. They said when they were young, they believed in Grandfather Frost. Grandfather Frost is the Soviet version of Santa Claus. But now that they were adults, they did not need to believe that anymore. That was the answer that one couple gave me. I thought it was very interesting. A society operating where science, remember, was during the time of the space age. In Moscow, there was this big monument to Yuri Gagarin going into space. It was very highly stressed that science was going to solve the problems. Remember the quote from Lenin in 1920s? Electrification, which means the building of hydroelectric dams, will bring socialism. And that was what I saw. Basically, they had this euphoria about science. In my experience that I was there, that what I noticed. I'm going to stop right there and ask any questions. Does this book go into dialectical materialism's place no, in terms no. of science and religion? Uh, no, I don't believe it does. Yeah. Oh, okay, never mind that. He goes into materialism. One of Bruce Spinoza's main philosophical points or contributions, you could say, yeah. to yeah. philosophy was the idea of what's known as the monist conception, what's known as monism, this idea that, like, the whole universe, this whole question of, like, God that had been discussed before Spinoza had been, in one fell swoop, transformed into just a singular philosophy um, through what's called Spinozism. Right. And like that apparently prefigured Hegel. I was wondering if, if this book is going to go into Hegel at all in terms no, of I, that. I didn't find that out. I don't know if everybody read the rest of it. I didn't find that, no. Okay, so it's not so much philosophy with the religion part, it's just science and religion. Yeah. That's basically okay, uh, what it is. Yeah. In places like Poland there was a very large concentration of Catholics there, about eighty percent of the population. And the Catholic Church held an awful lot of sway over average everyday life in Poland. But in Russia, about 76% of the population was Greek Orthodox at the time of the revolution. But it, the Greek Orthodox Church held next to no sway over the way that things were done. Does it talk about how different religions might have different ways of maintaining their status quo or hold? No, it, it doesn't break it up that way. But everyone should remember that the church in Russia was connected with the nation building, very much so. Just like the church in Italy was very closely connected to the nation building. However, there's a big however, when the nation of Italy was set up, it was separate from the Vatican. There was a deliberate attempt by Garibaldi and what we called the red shirts at the time in Italy to separate the church from the building of Italy as a nation state, not a city state. That did not happen in Russia. From the very beginning, the connection between the Tsar and the church was so close, so close, that when World War II came around, Stalin 
who represented a different philosophy, Stalin had a rapprochement with the church. And the rapprochement was because Stalin knew that they needed the church's support in the coming war against Germany. And that's why in the 30s, unlike the 20s, things changed in Russia. For example, homosexuality, which was free, freed from society during the 20s, was no longer the same situation under the period of the 30s. It was considered a negative thing. So was abortion, which was much widely held in the 20s in Russia. And in the 30s, there was a push for large families and yeah. because of the war coming, needing soldiers, etc. So the church in Russia was always closely identified with the nation. And the head of the Moscow Patriarch, Synod was very pro during the Stalin period and the Soviet period was very pro-communist. Anybody want to say anything on that? When you say the church, it's the Orthodox Church? Yes, the Orthodox in Church Russia. in Russia, yeah. right. All right, that's all I wanted to confirm. All right. right, and it was the Roman Catholic Church in Italy. Yeah, the same Roman Europe. Catholic Church that the comrade mentioned was in Poland. Yes. And from right. the very beginning, the church in Poland took a reactionary role from the very beginning, in the 1950s, the 1956 to be exact, the Polish government, which was a socialist government, and remember, Sean Paul II came in the 60s. Don't remember the name of the Pope, to be honest with you. But the position was he the one the that got killed? What, supposedly killed? No. Wasn't it John 23? No, John 23 was the one that came in the 60s. We're talking oh, about in 56. Yeah. Don't know. It could have even have been what they call the fascist pope, the one who, in World War II, <laughs> they called him that because he supported Hitler in Austria. Pope Pius. Yeah, Pope Pius. I don't remember now, Pope Pius X or twelfth, something like that. The point is that the 56 period, agriculture was socialized in Poland, and there was an up uprising led by the church to desocialize agriculture. So whereas industry was socialized, the means of production were socialized, on the land, they went back to private plots, which is a less efficient way of doing things. And that's what happened in Poland, basically because of the church. They use that as an example of their beginning to mount their power against the socialist state. I think if we do not go by imperialist propaganda by, led by the United States, people like Putin and the second strongest party in uh, the former Soviet Union still is the CPSU. They are still in existence. And I think Putin claims to be a nationalist, but we have to understand his background. He's an ex-member of the KGB, and he was located in East Germany. So I think he has come to understand that uh, deindustrialization or the so-called post-industrial society practiced in countries like Germany and UK and France I think they have rejected that. So I think the Putin administration is into science and technology again, and the, the church is not against that. So I think, for the most part, the former Soviet Union has understood the bankruptcy of the Gorbachev revolution and stuff, and I think they are going uh, to socialist relations of production, and that is how I see that. So the West is talking about oligarchy, Putin being a billionaire and stuff like that, and that is not verifiable, and I don't trust it. Okay, I want to give you a little side note to that. Putin was put into power by Yeltsin. Everybody should remember that. 
When Yeltsin was stepping down, he anointed, he chose Mm -hmm. Putin to be his successor. We also have to remember what Yeltsin represented. It was Mm -hmm. Yeltsin who bombed the White House. They called it the White House, the Soviet Parliament. It was Mm -hmm. white. That's why they called it the White House. He bombed it with tanks. That's the same Putin. The same Putin who had pictures of himself with Clinton, President Bill Clinton, in which Clinton said, this is the man to bring democracy to Russia. That's Mm -hmm. what Clinton said when they bombed the White House. And by the way, there were over 1,200 defenders of the Soviet government in there who were killed. I just want to bring that up to remind people. I had issues with, I didn't use that science and religion can be used by the capitalist. Have you ever heard of the phrase, eye of the beholder, when it comes to a... a yes, yes, eye of the beholder, yeah. yes. We have to remember that all because it says science, we have to be skeptical of that science because we have to know who is analyzing this data. So that's the only thing I had issues with this book, that science like religion could be used as a weapon against the masses, just like what Trump is doing right now by claiming that global warming is a conspiracy. That's all I wanted to say. Okay, I just want to add to that. Trump and the forces around him are denying that there's any such thing as global warming. That's their position. And the other side is saying that's not scientific. There is such a thing as global warming with the melting of the ice caps in the southern and northern poles. So, yeah, I just wanted to add to that. Just wondering that since religion, we talk about the chicken and the egg, the religion came before the science. And in our case, Catholic religion and Orthodox religion was around before communist theory. What's to say that the leaderships of our communist movement are not ideologically compromised by religion? Yes, good point. Because I'm thinking that maybe some of these thoughts like universal human values and things that Gorbachev talked about had their origins in religious doctrine. Yeah, that's interesting, because when Gorbachev gave his speech, for the people who don't remember, what Gorbachev said at the United Nations in 1985, okay, that was his first statement. And one would think that the head of the Soviet Union, a supposedly Marxist-Leninist, would talk about the class struggle. And that was absent. That analysis was absent and only talked about universal human values, which basically said that the boss and the worker have the same values. And, of course, as communists, we scratch our head when somebody says that. How could the boss have the same values as a worker? The object of the boss, by being a boss, is to make profit. That's his first agenda. The worker's first agenda is not to make profit, but to defend his job and to defend the income that he has attributed up until this point by his labor. So it came out at that United Nations speech. Okay, I want to get back to this for a minute. Some things I underlined here. The author says, for a long time, to be a materialist and declare oneself an atheist was considered degrading. It was considered vulgar often criminal, and that is the truth. During the 50s, many people don't know this, the Pledge of Allegiance was, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. Remember, before that we had monarchy. 
and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That was the pledge. In the 50s, during the struggle against communism, during the attack against the Rosenbergs, during the attack against the Communist Party, they added two words. And to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, they added under God. That was never in the Pledge of Allegiance. Never. Never. That was added as an attack against communism and socialism, which they viewed as atheistic, because it was materialistic. So I wanted to tell you that I was brought up, and I memorized it a certain way. So when they changed it in the 50s, I had to change, and I said to change. But I remembered the original. And so when I became a teacher myself in 1970, and I had grammar school children, third grade, and we said the pledge every morning. When we said the pledge, I did not listen to the loudspeaker. I, my voice being louder than the loudspeaker, I went with my class, with my pupils, and I read the original version, and I left that under God. So my, my pupils, they probably got confused when they went to the next level in the fourth grade with a regular, a different teacher. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's the way it was originally. And I want to mention, by the way, nobody may know this, the pledge was organized, written, and set up by a person who was considered a socialist in his days. His name was Bellamy, if I'm correct. And he did the pledge, and it was considered by a socialist. Also, I want to remind people, the first pledge by Bellamy, the children held up their hands in a Nazi salute. This was before there was any Nazis. This was before there was any Nazis. So interesting for people to study how the Nazis got that salute. What does it mean? Because it was done in the late 1800s by Bellamy, the pledge. I don't know if anybody knows any of this information. In America, they still do that to salute the nationalist flag. That is yeah. interesting. With the Nazi hand? Salute, yeah. Oh, I you see? I I'm glad you told me. And I still do that to this day, yeah. That's interesting. So it goes before the Nazis. We associated with the Nazis, and it may not be historically correct. It may have preceded the Nazis. It's possible. So I just wanted to bring that little story about my own teaching career, and that, again, because a person calls himself a socialist <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that they're a socialist. Because their definition of socialism, sure as anything, is not the same as Marx's definition of socialism. Let me just finish this. What is the position of materialism in our time? That's the question. How does materialism justify its refusal to support religious idealism? Now, it didn't say religious freedom, religious idealism, and every conceivable form of idealism. Again, idealism says that the idea is first and the senses are second. Is materialism in a position today to supply satisfactory answers to the many questions of morality, origins, and faith, which arise in the consciousness of the most highly developed modern person. Now, what is idealism versus materialism? As we have seen, all idealists and religious people believe that the spirit is absolutely distinct, separate from the body. 
that it has nothing material about it, the spirit. One of them has defined matter, which is what we believe in, as, quote, something stupid and devoid of thought. Consciousness is of an entirely different essence, but then their difficulty, their stumbling block is to explain the relationship of thought to the body. How can thought, which cannot go outside itself, acquire knowledge of the body and of material objects which are outside of the body, which are of quite a different nature from thought? I don't know if everybody here understands this, that idealism is based on thought and all religious philosophies are based on idealism, that there's a separation between the material, which includes the body, and the idea, which is the mind. Into the uh, distinction between ideal and material, idealism, one or the other holds that the first is, what do you say, prime. In deciding whether something is known or not, basically, like, idealists would say that you create your own reality. Like, your mind is like, you think a certain way or that kind of thing. Your ideas, everyone's sum total ideas make it up, whereas materialists say, no, it doesn't really matter first what people's ideas are about things. In order for them to even have the ideas, all these other things have to first be there. So it's a question of if one were to like build a house of cards, materialism would hold that you have to first set down the foundation, whereas idealism holds that you build the roof first. Right. Okay. Thank you. Now, the whole concept of what materialism and, and idealism is, for us as communists, we all idealistic. You think about it. We don't yeah. think we have never that, seen communism. None of us. We can't even imagine it yet because it hasn't ever existed at this moment. So we are working in a materialistic way to achieve that. So in a sense, materialism, if you look at materialism and idealism, idealism is an abstract concept, right? So materialistic, we are able to change it through our actions. At this moment, I'm only so powerful as a human being to change it. So I'm going to change it in the way I can. That's all. Okay, let me clarify that, because I had that same problem my whole life, okay. what you just said, until I found out that the religious philosophical view of the word idealism is not the same as the local use of the word idealism. We tend to hmm. use the word idealism as something to strive for, something that's very good morally, but that's not the way the early philosophers used it. Idealism to them was the idea, that the idea comes first and the material comes second. And I didn't know that to my whole life. I didn't realize that until the last 20 years of my life. The confusion between the terminology, the colloquial modern term of idealism versus what these philosophers mean, idealism is devoid of reality. Materialism looks at reality and tries to understand it, while idealism does not, in short. The reasons for it are, of course, more complex, and we are going over them now. But yeah, this differs from the uh, colloquial term of idealism, standing for, like, ideals and values and striving. Right, exactly. That's the point I was making. That's the point I was saying. He was looking at the local colloquium of that word yeah. as the same as what the philosophers were talking about, and that's yeah. not. Now, okay. I mentioned, I'm going to end it with this. Plato, this I didn't know myself. 
Plato, yeah. Aristotle, and Socrates. We all heard those words. We all were taught that they were something to look up to. Plato did not hesitate to assert that the soul, the soul, lived a different life before its present life on earth. I didn't know this. In the previous existence of a soul, it was able to think about ideas. Knowledge is thus memory of another world. It is a reminiscence of another world. And that I never really thought about. Neither did I think that Plato and the early Greek philosophers were basically, how would I say, it says it here, they tried to present the world in an analysis of ideas, that the idea came first and the material came second. So I'm learning yeah. with this as I'm teaching the class. So from those who didn't say anything first, Going back to what you were saying about the uh, how I think it was in the, you said in the 1800s when they said the Pledge of Allegiance they were doing the whole Nazi salute and actually that actually got started with the Roman Empire because they all used to do that back in the day. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. Fascism is an Italian term. If Jesus Christ was alive today, he'd be accused of being a communist. That's my comment. Some of Lenin's criticisms of certain trends within scientific thought on coming, bringing the mind to his book, Materialism and Imperial Criticism. I like how it provoked discussion and thought. And just for everybody on the call, you know, we respect everybody. I'm enjoying it. I like this subject a lot. I personally, I've studied in the Soviet Union. There was this thing called the League of Militant Godless. And it That's was true. huge. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it used to be very present in the Komsomol, the youth. And just to give you the numbers, forget the name off the top of my head, but in the early 30s, it had a distribution of like 2 million copies every issue because it was a thing which became associated with the Komsomol. But it was, as you mentioned, Angelo, in World War II, Great Patriotic War, concessions were made, obviously, at the darkest hours, and this organization was dissolved. But I just wanted to mention that... Uh, I just wanted to end with a quote from Karl Marx. The ideal is nothing but the material world reflected in the minds of men and translated into forms of thought. Thank you. Uh, I think it is the most relevant, one of the most relevant presentations for our movement because the further we are from those ideas, I mean, that were uh, articulated in, uh, it's over a hundred years ago, I mean, the more idealistic we get ourselves. So I think it's very, it's the most uh, relevant to our party members and uh, also very re relevant also to so many members uh, in the working class movement here and uh, throughout the world because there is so much delving into religion to, to solve uh, socioeconomic problems globally, and especially Africa, Asia, Latin America, they are truly affected by idealism because of the level of poverty and hopelessness. And I think that would be very, very relevant literature also to those nations. And I would like to own that literature because it's very, very fundamental to keep it and read it again and again. And uh, I gave the view of the author. It's not necessarily my view. I come from a different thinking than that. So I, as Mark said, many of us are a contradictions. It's called a contradiction where we have one view and then we have another thing that comes into it. It's a contradiction that Marx talks about. The view I gave tonight is the view of the author. I want to stress that. And that's all I want to say. And to me, I learned a lot from this short pamphlet. And that's all I want to say. I want to thank everybody for coming. Thank you all, comrades and friends.